Welcome to Scale Her Up, the female entrepreneur show with me, Brenda Hector. I'm a business growth specialist helping business owners to develop themselves and grow their businesses so they can achieve their goals and enjoy the lifestyle they dream of. I'm also on a mission to revolutionise the entrepreneurial landscape for women in business. In every podcast episode, I interview someone who has an inspiring story or some great advice for women aiming to start or scale their businesses. If you're new to the show, take a moment to subscribe and please check out the previous ones after listening to this. We've got an awesome community on Facebook. Just search for Scale Her Up and join in. So today on the Scale Her Up podcast, I have Dr. Caroline Burrell of Elasmogen, who's going to tell us about her entrepreneurial journey in the life sciences industry. So welcome, Caroline. It's really good to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brenda. So what well, we usually just start with a bit of an introduction to your your journey as a businesswoman. How did how did you get into business in the first place? Sure, yeah, no problem at all. So in in many respects I, I guess there was a, a little bit of serendipity, which is which is always welcome if you can embrace it and, and open some doors and step through. And in my case, I, I think that that was pretty much the case. So I've been in life sciences for a long, long period of time. Um, I was fortunate to begin in academia and got really good training uh, through a bachelor's and a PhD. And then I think it was at that point when I began, began my journey as a postdoc, I stepped across into industrial science. So I stepped across into a position that was available in a biotechnology company. And so for those who are unfamiliar with that, it's it's very much more the application of life sciences towards business and developing for the purposes of, of clinical development assets and technologies that you commercialize. And so in essence, you are running a business and you're looking for investment uh, and or licensing opportunities from the development of those assets. And I have to say, when I moved over to biotech, I think my fire was just relit, to be perfectly honest, with regards to life sciences. It really fit who I was and my desire to apply the science and technology, I guess, that I'd worked on all those years in academia into something that would eventually convert into a medicine in the clinic. And so that's when I first entered industry. But myself as a businesswoman came later than that when an opportunity arose, when I had then transitioned into big pharma, and I worked on a technology, a really exciting technology, which is an antibody-like technology. And when that big pharma closed its site in Aberdeen, I had the opportunity to use all the assets and, and the patents that we had developed as a springboard to start my own biotechnology company. And that's really where my business side evolved, was being thrown into this world of starting a new company, a new venture, and a new biotech company. It's, it's a really interesting journey for me as someone who also came from academia and science and I've taken a different route into business. But I love the the application of that academic science into something that comes of benefit to society, if you like, in terms of the biotechnology. Yes, that's critically important. And a lot of life sciences it's really, you can almost split it up into an invention and innovation. And, and the two of them are quite distinct. A lot of invention happens in academia because academia has a broader 
uh, basic biology base, if you like. So it has the opportunity to really explore the fundamentals of biology for the purposes of understanding more about our world, you know, how we operate, how the world around us operates, everything from um, kind of understanding botanical sciences through to, you know, space, deep space. And so it really is important to nurture and let that blue sky research happen. But equivalently, it's also important to identify opportunities from which you can innovate those inventions. And this, this is where the kind of cross fertilization of academia and industry comes in and working together to then look at what the kind of science that's been developed, those ideas, and then see if there's opportunity to take them forward. And as you quite rightly say, to actually convert them into something which really makes a difference socially and medically. Yeah, and, and also a, a very different perspective to a lot of businesses who the innovation that, that's going on in business is very much driven by a desire to provide something to their customer or to make a, a process within the business more efficient. So, yeah, really, really good to have the, the contrast there. I like You've got, got me thinking anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> so tell me about Elasmogen and what it is that you, you actually do. Yes, good question. If you can, if you can, I I know that it'll be it'll be high tech, but oh no, 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 no! It's it's. I always like people asking what I do. <laughs> so it's really very diverse. My my actual day job is, which is one of the most beautiful things about what I do, because I am always I'm always up for a challenge, and it's a very changing landscape. So in a nutshell, what we work on are antibody-like molecules and. I think in this kind of background that we've seen happening with the pandemic, um, one positive out of this very dark period is that the world of antibodies um, has kind of been, you know, it's more accessible to a lot more people because people hear about it on the news now and there's a lot more explanation about what's happening with antibodies. I mean, with regards to vaccination, we are raising antibodies in our own body in response to vaccination. So that's one aspect of it. But what we can do now as biotechnologists is really exploit those antibodies that are produced inside the body and create them externally as drugs. And so it's kind of a different approach. So what you're doing is you're raising an antibody specifically against a disease target or a virus or a fungus or a bacterium, any of these kind of invaders of our body. And then we can develop them into an actual drug or a medicine and inject them back into patients. And we've seen over the last few decades absolute paradigm shifts in our understanding of antibody development. Um, and so what we do at Elasmogen is we are what you would call a next generation antibody-like molecule. And the key differences with our technology are that it's much simpler it's like any kind of technology you you use it you learn about it you innovate on it and you kind of redesign it to make it more effective and i think that's where we come into the marketplace so our antibody like molecules are much much smaller so that they can penetrate further into tissue or tumors for example they're much simpler so we can actually link them together so we're not limited in, to target one disease molecule, we can target a couple of disease molecules at the same time. And what we're trying to do at the moment, and, and where we really are different from antibodies, is that we're trying to quite literally 
reach the parts that antibodies can't. So we're developing orally available antibody-like molecules, which really is very different from what's out there at the moment, as every antibody needs to be injected into the body. And they are very, very expensive medicines. And we're trying to take a simpler, cheaper, more cost-effective approach to really help patients. And also, I guess, the payers of medicines like the NHS and NICE to make it more amenable to a broader patient population. So you're developing the technology and the product and se- and then selling that as as a drug that can treat cancer or at what what sort of sure so space in the in the yeah, in supply no, chain are you? Yeah. So what we have, Brenda, is we have the engine. We have the engine from which we can isolate our domains. Uh, So our antibody-like domains, we call them solomers, okay, just to differentiate them from antibodies. So we have different platforms that we can isolate our solomers against different targets. And you're absolutely right. So oncology or cancer is a key area for us. We also work in the world of autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. And we are a small company and we're good at drug discovery. So what we do is we isolate our solomers We look at their effectiveness uh, on cell-based assays. We take them through to to late-stage preclinical, which is just a classic drug discovery path. And then what we look for are partners to take it further into the clinic. Taking a, a drug into the clinic is an incredibly important part of drug development, but it's exceptionally, exceptionally expensive. And so the clinical trials that you hear about and see sometimes on the television cost millions and millions of pounds. And so we simply don't have the capacity to take a drug all the way through the clinical trial process and get it to approval and actually sell it. So what we do is we partner with large pharmaceutical companies, the names of which you're probably familiar with, and we hope that they will then take the drug and develop it further. Okay. Okay, so in in terms of the the so that that's the science, and I, I hope that everybody followed that because I I know it's it's quite in depth. But in terms of the business, then what sort of size of team have you got? How did you grow the company from from when you you started up? Sure. So we are a small team of individuals, and so directly employed by Elasmogen, there are eight individuals, six of which are research scientists. But on top of that, what we also have succeeded in doing is establishing strong partnerships with other companies. So we have about 10 scientists in Almac Discovery working alongside on our technology. We have another five scientists in Queen's University, Belfast, working on our technology. And we actually have scientists in South Korea, for example, with our partners there and working on our technology as well. So What we've managed to do is gain economies of scale and scope by partnering. But what we also have and what we're trying to be is resource smart about also expanding the business. So we outsource a lot of activities that simply would detract our scientists from doing the key drug discovery. So in our world, you need to produce some of the material in order to test it. So we can outsource that, for example. Some pieces of analysis or experiments require really complex pieces of equipment, which we simply couldn't afford to buy in-house. And so we outsource those kind of studies. And so what we try to do, as with any small biotech company, is keep it quite tight with the kind of experts that we have on the ground, but look 
externally for any additional uh, expertise that we require and take that into the company as we need it as we go along that drug discovery pathway. I think that's a valuable lesson to a business in any industry, actually, is to not try to do everything yourself and that there are other experts that are there available to help you. So, yeah, I hope you're listening, everyone. (laughs) And in terms of the business you've you've built then, you know, what have been the the biggest challenges that you've had and, and how have you overcome those? Well, the biggest challenge is money. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that is, and it is a continual challenge. And so the way in which our business is set up, it's, it's kind of an unusual business in that you, you made the very smart comment earlier about producing something, finding customers and selling something. Well, we simply don't do that. So our business requires a lot of money to do the work that we do, to develop the drugs as far as we develop them. Um, And also, actually, importantly, to cover the patent costs, which is another critical aspect of our business that not every business has to do. So we have to protect the intellectual property of everything that we do as well, which is a which is a very expensive process. And so we look for investors and they can be classic uh, venture capitalists. They can be high net worths. They can be angel investors. Uh, We also look for grant opportunities. So in the life sciences, there are some great but very competitive opportunities to get funding in to develop certain programs of work. Innovate UK, for example, BBSRC, for example. And then what we also do is we look for business partners. So I do a lot of business development and I look for companies that would like access to our technology platform um, to isolate solomers against their preferred drug targets, disease targets. And so in that case, what you can do is you can get some revenue generation from access to the platform. And then what you tend to do in our world is get milestone payments as those drugs are developed and get closer to the clinic. So that's the kind of model that we have to build around ourselves. And, and when I say money and I talk about investment, I'm talking about millions of pounds. And so to date, we've brought seven million into the company since 2013. And that is a mix of equity, which is what you give when you have an investor coming on board and and they give you money, you give them shares in the company. Uh And also non-dilutive equity. And so that's grants and other research opportunities. And then, of course, pure revenue, which is a much smaller component, which is when you do these kind of partnership deals and you get access to the platform. So those are the key challenges. And I have literally been out. Well, not been out. I've been in my in my house, (laughs) but connecting (laughs) to a conference last week, um, which normally takes place in San Francisco which is the JP Morgan conference. And these are the kind of conferences or biopartnering meetings that I attend frequently. And they are really access to investors globally. Um, so we look to investors beyond the, the kind of United Kingdom. So we look at European investors, we look at US investors, we look at Chinese investors, Japanese investor groups. You know, we, we really do Uh, connect with a lot of opportunities across the globe and when you do that what you have to do is you have to propose what they would get for their money what the return on investment is what the company is trying to do the use of funds 
etc. And so we are out at the moment looking to secure £15 million. And that £15 million is to take two of our drugs into early stage clinical development. Okay, so this is a big, big change for our company as a company that sits in the preclinical space, so the kind of later stage development of the drugs. But now what we want to do is because we have an oncology drug that looks really exciting and an autoimmune drug that looks really exciting, if we can secure that kind of money, we can become a clinical stage company. And that creates a massive value inflection point for a biotech company like ours. And so that has been the key challenge since I started this company. And that remains the key challenge as I try and grow this company as well. So what's what's the aim for the company? Is it to build a business that's of value to to be purchased by an, a bigger organization or are is is it just to continue to do to do great work that's that's going to make a difference to the to society? Yes, well, I, probably both. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my my personal driver, and I can tell you now quite clearly, the the drivers of the team is the take to be a small part of of a drug that gets taken through to the clinic and benefits people. I mean, there's no question about that. That's why we do what we do. That's why we've invested so so much time and effort into building this company. And that very much is the driver for the scientists in the team. For the investors in the company, it's a very different approach. And so ultimately, absolutely. Um, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and of course, we have a duty to the, the shareholders in the company. There's no question of that. And classically with biotech companies, and you know, if, if you're in my world, you kind of keep track of, of the press coming out from all over the world about uh, companies being bought up and, and purchased by larger companies. That's just the way of it. That's what happens. And so acquisition is commonplace. If yeah. you can make a, a success of your company, if you can show and validate the technology that you've developed, if you can, like I was talking about, take a drug for the first time into those very early stages of clinical development and show that it's safe inside patients, that's a huge um, area of interest for larger pharma companies. That really does tick all their boxes with regards to a new opportunity. And what you find with, with larger pharmaceutical companies is that they can't really do everything. They, the, the earlier stages of R&D are the most expensive parts of their business. So what they tend to do is they tend to invest in uh, scouts our business development people in their companies who go out to these biopartnering meetings that I've just attended and they yeah. seek out and look for innovative small biotech companies. And yes, absolutely, they will then go forward and they will look for acquisition, either acquisition opportunities of just the assets, by which I mean a drug within the company, so they would maybe license that and take it out of the mm -hmm. company and own it, or the whole company. If they want the platform, they want all the IP, they want all the know-how, and they want everything, absolutely acquisition is an absolute possibility. And I guess, yes, that's always in the back of my mind. As much as I'm driven, and I have been driven to grow the company and to make a successful therapeutic biologics company in Aberdeen, Acquisition is always there. Um, acquisition is always kind of hanging there as an opportunity, and, and we have to look into those opportunities. Um, another opportunity, I guess, which is another exit, if you like, which is what we always talk about in our world, is IPO, so initial public offering. Mm 
And so you find a lot of biotech companies um, then looking to seek investment through the public markets um, and essentially, you know, uh, applying to go on AIM uh, as a, a kind of smaller hurdle or a larger hurdle heading straight into the NASDAQ. And so that's that's a means of getting a larger volume of capital into the company. But of course, it comes with all the strings attached of them becoming a public company and, and the challenges thereof of disclosure um, and governance that comes with all of that. So it's certainly an opportunity. It's something we're not thinking about at the moment, but certainly growing the company, developing the drugs, trying to crack into that early stage clinical development and then keeping keeping our options open. I mean, that's what we're all about is just looking to see if there's an opportunity there. And my goodness, Brenda, they come up in the least expected <laughs> moment, in the least expense, expected conversations. You know, there's just a, a, an ignition there of a, of a small flame that can turn into a fire of interest in the company. You know, it's it's amazing. And so the most important thing for me to do as the CEO of this company, and I guess my multiple hats of BD and investor relations and, and all the rest of the, the, the hats that I wear within a small company is to keep the partnerships going, is to get out there to speak to new investors, speak to new pharma companies, speak to smaller biotech companies who have compatible technologies. I mean, one of our furthest developed assets is a technology that we're co-developing with a company called Almac Discovery. And we couldn't do it alone and they couldn't do it alone. So together we're creating targeted chemotherapy drugs, which is a really exciting area for us. And that's one of the assets uh, for breast cancer in the first instance, that we're trying to get this investment to take it into the clinic. It's fascinating. It's such a different business model to what I'm mostly used to. And the collaboration part is fascinating that, you know, you outsource to other organisations and you you are the outsource for other parts of the, the process. So, yeah, fascinating. I had a question. I <laughs> gone right out of my head what was I going to say yeah, um, yeah it, well, it was a statement actually it was the that you're saying opportunity comes in the most unexpected places and having to just get out there and make the connections and everything and I guess it's about being open to any opportunity yeah yeah isn't it yeah yep yeah. yeah, spot on network 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 talk 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 <laughs> yeah and and don't you know don't assume you know what's what's coming because oh, yeah. yeah and that that's a a lesson for all of us in business, I think. So obviously the, the podcast is about supporting women in business and you're in a relatively male-dominated industry, I think, maybe let, getting less so as the years pass. But what, what's your experience as a, as a woman in business in, in the life, life sciences sector? Yeah, so in our world, and, and, and the balance has, has probably, probably been the same for even when I was young and just starting off in, in life sciences as a, as a young academic, is that, you know, I think, and I continue to see there, there is kind of equal um, entry into life sciences by both men and women at an early stage. And certainly, you know, when you look at kind of undergraduate degrees to postgraduate degrees, and I'm sure, you know, you, you have a PhD in this, this arena. It, it, it was a complete mix all the way through the whole process. 
But interestingly, when I when I then switched over to industry, there there then became a little bit more of an imbalance. And this was just a point in my career. I mean, this may be also the case in academia, but I, I wouldn't like to make comment on that. But in industry, there certainly were and still are a lot of women as researchers in the lab um, at all levels, right the way from um, research through to principal scientists. And then as you kind of enter into the world of uh, management, that kind of decreases a little bit. But then when you enter the world of corporate management, if you like, so you're now looking at directors within companies, um, that the split becomes more obvious uh, with the ratio in favor of men. And then if you look at the positions on boards, then absolutely the split continues and there is a, a, a definite propensity for, for, for male domination uh, in the boardroom um, with regards to numbers. And interestingly also is if you do a split, and forgive me because I should have done my absolute homework, so I'm not going to throw any numbers at you, but if you look That's at fine. the percentage <laughs> of companies led by women a lot less of them get investment, actually, if you if you if you do the, the kind of uh, ratio and you correct for numbers and such like it's a much lower percentage, which is really yes. unfortunate. I, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Well, I refer often to the, the Rose Review of Female Entrepreneurship mm-hmm. that, that was commissioned by the UK government. And it shows that female-led businesses are much less likely to get investors. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and that, that's something that really needs to be needs to be changed and I guess that's a additional challenge that you know in a business like yours that is heavily reliant on large amounts of money yeah absolutely and and I, to be honest I'm not entirely sure what the answer to that is you know and I, I I mean certainly in my time as being a CEO of a life sciences company there have been more women-led investment companies <laughs> and good yes yeah absolutely so <laughs> And and that's a fascinating change. So then, and you know, I, I'm certainly not an advocate of I'm all I'm not an advocate of of only women investing in women or or so on and so forth. I'm an advocate of investment into good quality companies and technologies and such like. So, I, I struggle to try and find or put my finger on the reason why there's still a disparity between investment into female-led companies as opposed to male-led companies. And so that that I think is challenging and that certainly needs address. As to my experiences within a life sciences sector as being a woman leading a company, I certainly have never, and as far as I've, I've gone, had any criticism from my team or, or any open criticism certainly from my <laughs> team about being a woman and, and in leadership. I found that an absolute delight. I'm a very transparent leader. Um, I'm very, uh, I incorporate everybody in and give everybody responsibilities and, and opportunities to develop and such like. And I consider myself a very easy to approach person in that respect. So the dynamic that I have directly with the team has been brilliant and continues to be as is the kind of business development side and, and talking to pharma companies. Because my experience is I used to work in pharma companies. And so my my experiences there have always been very positive and there is a balance when you're speaking to pharma companies particularly with the research teams that there are a lot of women there and a lot of men there actually so all of that has been very simple and i don't see any barriers there i think the barrier i feel sometimes is this kind of and i know this is a strange thing to say but sometimes being taken more seriously 
as a leader of a business. And this comes into the conversations with investment. And as to what I can change and what I can do, I'm, I'm struggling to really find the answers to that. And I would throw out there sometimes, and you know, you know, if you're working or you're having meetings with people from all different parts of the world, there are differences in the way that a woman is listened to as opposed to a man. And, and those absolutely are cultural differences. And I embrace that. And I think it's important to understand these, these differences. That, to a certain degree, has been a little bit challenging. And sometimes I feel that my voice is not being heard. And my chairman, who's a man, <laughs> is being listened to more than I am. Right. But that I don't think is something that we can break down and, and is going to alter um, because that, um, that, that is just a kind of fact of life. As to balancing board level entry, that I find frustrating. And, you know, I, I go out there and I'm looking for non-execs to join our board. And, you know, I'm, I am trying to find women leaders who are in a position or open up uh, opportunities to join boards and again I'm, I'm you know by far the majority of applicants are, are men you know so I I struggle to find out really what the, the barriers are for that you know higher level of entry if you like or higher level of development as a woman into the kind of corporate structure of companies. I, I wonder if there's a, an issue around role models there Mm. I notice, well, in the same publication that I was talking about, the Rose Review, that there are entrepreneurship is not is not an avenue that is widely available and unknown to to many women. Mm-hmm. Partly because we don't have the the role models, we don't we don't see mm. as many women, you know, women like like ourselves who are running our own our own businesses and that's part of the purpose of the the podcast is to showcase you know women like you as a as a role model that is it is doable and if there are less women in those kind of roles then it, the rest of us maybe aren't aware that that's a that's a path that's available i think it that maybe that... maybe needs more publicizing yeah i think i think you have a, a great point there, Brenda, and, and I agree. And, you know, as you're saying that, I'm trying to to scan my brain to think of who I looked up to, actually, as a role model in, in this kind of position. And, I mean, I'm fortunate, and we are fortunate in, in, in Aberdeen, particularly, there are there are a couple of great companies that are, are led by women in the life sciences. And I do reach out to those women who are good friends for advice um, and ideas about certain things as, as we know we've grown our company. But yeah, as I was coming through this whole process and I was actually spinning the business out, I didn't really have anybody that I kind of contacted during that time. So yes, I think that's a very, very good point. Yeah, and I'm not the one that's supposed to be an in, be an interviewer. Ah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but hey, you, yeah, but you know, it, it's a, just, it's a two way thing. You're making me think. Yeah. I'll make you think. This is how it works. <laughs> just, it just, just came to me as you were talking. So uh, yeah, that's that's good. So another thing that a lot of people see as something that's holding women back is the personal responsibilities as well. You know. I know when we talked previously, we we spoke about the the challenges of being a working mom and and you know, running running a business. How 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 did you find that that sort of part of of your journey? 
Absolutely. So I'm I'm a very proud mother of of two incredible daughters who just make me prouder and prouder as as they progress in their own independent lives. I guess I was I was fortunate in that I here in in Aberdeen I I did have family support when when the girls were a lot lot younger, but I did go part time, and um, because to me what was important was to be part of their lives as they were growing up and developing. And I still wanted um, to continue in my academic career as well. So I I found that a huge challenge. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, kind of make it sound like I, you know, you can do everything and have everything. Because to me, I did struggle because the commitment that the life science uh, arena required in academia was significant. Um, it's very seldom you can start at nine and end at five. <laughs> Life uh-huh. science just doesn't work like that, as you well know. And so having to put those extra hours in and, and coming in at the weekends and doing what you need to do to be a successful researcher and climb that academic ladder. Yes, it impacted. It impacted my career um, significantly, I would say, to be to be honest with you. But I don't regret that because I needed to be part of my girls' lives when they were younger and I wanted to be. And, you know, I, you know, that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so trying, you know, everybody talks about balance and everybody talks about having it all. Well, I would say you can't have it all. (laughs) You know, I think you do have to, um, you, you do have to kind of give uh, and you give a lot, you know, so I gave a lot of the percentage opportunity with developing a career early on and progressing as far as my peers did very quickly. I, I gave up on that. Um, and I also, I guess, sacrificed a little of my time when I could have spent longer with the girls. And so, but I, like I said, I don't regret it because I had a bit of both, but I didn't have everything. And, and I haven't had by a long shot. I, I still maintain that it is give and take and trying to to reach that kind of balance uh, is is very very difficult and it's a very individual thing and i think as a woman you know i've listened to other women saying well i gave up my career completely because my children you know were more important and that kind of made me feel a bit guilty and then equivalently i've had women saying well i went straight back full time because my career was really important and and i thought well that made me feel guilty <laughs> And I'm kind of like, we should make each other guilty because guilt is a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous emotion to have because you should only feel guilty if you've knowingly done something wrong and none of us are doing anything wrong. So guilt is a false emotion and we shouldn't feel that. We should just do what works for us. We should do what works for our family and do what works for us. And my message would be to younger women who are coming through their early stages of career, particularly in their life sciences, or this may be true for any career, to be honest, is that you do have time. You know, I mean, I entered into my own business in my, crikey, my mid-40s, I set this company up, right? (laughs) And so it's never too late to do anything you want to do. And I wonder if I'd be capable of doing what I'm doing now when I was younger. And that's nothing to do with having a younger family. It's more to do with my experience that I've gained throughout the years in the interim, actually. And so I was, I guess I was a bit anxious and driven by time when I was younger. And I I was trying to do everything and be everything. And all you end up doing is just wearing yourself down. And you need to stop 
and you need to pat yourself on your on the back and say, look, you know, I am succeeding here because I am retaining a level of commitment to my career. I am contributing actively to this world of science. I am learning. I am sharing my knowledge. I am developing as an independent scientist and indeed as, as a person who's going to carry on in this career path. But also, I've got a fantastic family. You know, my kids are, I would say they're reasonably normal and I'm very proud of my investment into them. <laughs> and uh, they've come out of it and now they look at their mom and say, well, you know, my mom's a CEO of her own company. And, you know, they kind of have become independent very quickly and they've progressed further than I ever would have in their individual careers. And I hope sincerely that what I've done and achieved has played a little role in that, you know? Oh, uh, bound to played a, a massive role in that yeah as a as i'm talking again about role models <laughs> a, a great role model to your to your girls so well done there's another podcast actually with uh, rosie elliott who started her business when she retired from oh, a complete career wonderful. so yeah it's never too late for any of us yeah she's currently 70 and loving being Brilliant. a businesswoman so yeah a great great message there as well so in, in terms of your, your business journey, who, who were your biggest supporters? Oh, goodness. Well, my husband. <laughs> because I guess, you know, as this business started, I had to put more commitment, more time in and travel a lot more. And so he stepped in there, as he always has done right the way through our relationship. So he's brilliant. And he even listens to me bang on about science um, when he hasn't got a clue what I'm talking about. So that's always nice. <laughs> and then I guess my immediate I was fortunate when we spun this company out kind of I was unfortunate and then fortunate I suppose because the reason or the the kind of push to spinning out the company originally was that we were in big pharma in Aberdeen developing this technology and then that big pharma company closed down the Aberdeen site and so our jobs were made redundant essentially so I already had a team. I had a team there on the ground. I had a team of brilliant people, passionate people who then ended up without a job. And so that was a big driver for me anyway, but I had them come with me on this journey. And so I've I've always had this kind of support group, if you like, right the way through this process. And then on top of that, what I've done is I surrounded myself with people who had kind of been there, seen it, done it as well. And so I had people to bounce off of and I had people to support me. So the University of Aberdeen, and an absolute shout out to them because, I mean, they supported me. Scottish Enterprise actually supported me as well. And I think that the immediate team, I think what they helped me do was just be gutsy about things. Because, you know, when you step out into a world that you've never been in before, you concern yourself with making mistakes. You concern yourself with saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And you concern yourself with kind of going day to day thinking, I've never done this before. How on earth do you do it? You know, and I think a lot of it is just kind of like, just do it. You know, just what's the worst that can happen? And I personally needed that kind of support group around me, that framework to always be there to say, you know, you know, just just you just go for it. You know, we're behind you sort of thing, you know. And when we did spin the company out, my goodness, I, I it was such a proud moment. I mean, it really was. It, I was really chuffed, I think is the best way to put it in very simple <laughs> terms. And what I do or what I did do when I could leave my house is whenever things 
And things do get stressful. Things get stressful all the time. I mean, not just the science that's stressful, but, you know, trying to get the investment, continuing trying to get the partnerships in place. So there's a lot of stress associated with it. But that is by far outbalanced and outweighed by just walking around the labs, seeing the guys, you know, there working, getting excited about the science, having a laugh, finding out what's going on in their world and their families and so on and so forth and thinking, you know what? we built this, you know, we created this company and this environment and this culture. And I'm just very, very proud of it. So it's it's just kind of, it's it's just, I think, making sure you've got that support with you and alongside you and the kind of, I, I don't know, I, I guess the sounding boards, because sometimes you think you're asking something stupid, but to you, it's really important at that time. And so Make sure you've got people around you that are open and will listen to you and will give you that kind of help when you need it. Well, that is great advice. I think it can be quite it can be quite lonely mm-hmm. being at the top of a business, you know, whether whether it's yourself in business or whether you've got a team. But, you know, to be to be what the one at the top um, can be quite lonely, but you don't have to do it on your own. Yes, absolutely. Yeah purpose of the the podcast is about supporting women in business and to make a difference to the the numbers only one in three uk entrepreneurs are female and men are five times more likely to scale up to over a million and if yeah we can make a massive difference to the to the uk economy if if we were to start and scale at the same to the same degree as men do but what do you think that we can do to bring about that revolution yeah well you know something i think you you hit the nail on the head there brenda when you were talking about increasing visibility of women in senior roles increasing that role model uh, positioning and mentorship and and being there for, for for women to support them i think that something that i've kind of been aware of as i've gone through my career is women tend to undersell themselves and their capabilities and tend to not step out and step up, although they're more than capable of doing something, they will tend to sit back and be more comfortable in a position where they know everything rather than kind of taking that that leap of faith, if you like. Whereas in my experience, and I say this in my experience, a man will just go, yeah, I can do that. Um, you know, even if they have never done it before, they will they will step out and just try it, you know. So I think it's having that kind of um, gut, you know, the guts to kind of step out, the, the kind of support that people are there for you um, as you do that and as you grow as an individual. And absolutely, I think, you know, this podcast is brilliant and, and similar kind of activities where there's visibility and openness from women who have made that kind of leap and are very open to, to talking about it and their experiences and such like. But just don't underestimate what you're capable of. You are you are amazing. And, you know, one one phrase, you know, everybody has these kind of um, phrases that they, 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 they or quotes rather as they go through their career and such like. And, and one that I heard, which has stuck with me, was by uh, Rear Admiral. Rear Admirable, Admiral, God, I'll spit that again, <laughs> Admiral Grace Hopper. And Grace Hopper was a pioneer of computing uh, language um, back in the 60s. And she was obviously very high up in the, the US Navy as well. And she coined, a, she coined a lot of phrases. She was a, an incredibly gutsy woman. And she said, 
it's easier to seek forgiveness than permission. And I think that that sums me up because I used to be somebody who wouldn't step out unless I was sure it was okay to do that. And I'd asked if it was okay to do that. And now I just step. <laughs> and I think, well, if I don't do it, nothing will happen. So, you know, just do it. And, and you know, okay, I've had my finger slapped a few times. I've maybe made embarrassing statements, but God, I get the job done. And that's what it's about. And I, the more you do it, the more you gain. And I use the word confidence in a kind of, Confidence is a funny kind of word because it's almost like people don't, you've got the ability to do it. It's just stepping out and doing it. And I'm not sure if confidence covers that significantly because there's a lot of confident women there who still don't want to feel that exposed about going into a new world. But, you know, you have the capability and it's just about giving it a go. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, <laughs> Caroline. You are amazing. Okay. Just, yeah. Great to hear your story and your your advice and, and everything. Absolute pleasure. I wish you every success in, in your business growth and um, all the investors are clamouring to, to invest in your technology. It's, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be following your, your journey and uh, and seeing what, what's happening for Elasmogen. So is there anything else I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, goodness, Brenda. No, it's it, it was absolutely fantastic. And I just want to thank you for creating a platform like this. I There's nothing better than an informal chat and also nothing better than kind of bringing to the fore the importance of women in business and, and how we need to kind of change that landscape. So, well, thank you for contributing. It's been absolutely lovely to chat with you today. You too, Brenda. Take care and all the best. Thanks for listening to Scale Her Up, the female entrepreneur's show. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And please join our Facebook community at Scale Her Up. Please connect with me, Brenda Hector, on social media and drop me a message to let me know you're enjoying the podcasts. Or even better, pop a wee review on iTunes. I'm going to finish by reminding you, only one in three UK entrepreneurs are female. And men are five times more likely to scale their business to over one million in turnover than women. If we started and scaled our businesses to the same extent as men, it would add 250 billion to the UK economy and provide millions of jobs. Ladies, you can do it, and we're gonna make a massive difference.